all the best Bitcoin works read aloud so that you can listen. This is a Cryptoconomy Quick Read. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We are digging into another piece from Bitcoin Magazine, uh, and they've actually had a number of really good things recently that I'm going to be hitting on the show, um, but this one continues the thread from uh, Nick Carter's and Plan B's piece that we read on, uh, well, the importance and whether or not the having is priced in. I think this kind of hits some new topics that we didn't really cover. Um, and if you haven't listened to the Guys Take episode that I did following up both of those on why the having is not priced in, I uh, highly recommend that one. You can go check. It's only a couple of episodes back. But without further ado, this one is written by a uh, first-time author on the show. We've not read anything by him yet. Peter C. Earle. Um, and I will link to his um, uh, Twitter so that you can follow him on Twitter. But before we get into any commentary about this piece, let's go ahead and dive into this article. It is titled, The Kindest Cut, Why the 2020 Bitcoin Havening is the Most Important Yet. In May of 2020, Bitcoin will see its next halving. The Reduction of the Reward for Successfully Mining a Block The Nakamoto White Paper specifies that every 210,000 blocks the reward for successfully mining a block is cut by half. But while these occur roughly every four years, with the estimated reward dropping to one Satoshi on or around the year 2140, the Bitcoin halvening of 2020 is particularly momentous. At present, the reward for mining a block is 12.5 Bitcoin. In May, the reward for successfully adding a block to the blockchain will drop to 6.25 Bitcoin per block. The current annualized rate of inflation, some disambiguation regarding this later, is between 3.7% and 3.8%. An average of 144 blocks mined per day at 12.5 Bitcoin each, yielding approximately 1,800 new Bitcoin each day. A quick point of disambiguation. To describe the expansion in the size of Bitcoin's outstanding number of coins, as inflation, what might be called the float in equities or the money stock in more conventional currencies, is consistent with an older definition. Today, the term inflation is used to describe and assumed to mean an increase in general price levels within an economy. In fact, from the perspective that with increasing value, one Bitcoin buys more over time, it is indisputably deflationary. What's noteworthy about this point is that upon this particular halving, Bitcoin inflating at a roughly 1.8% rate annually will nominally, and by then quite possibly in real terms, be inflating at a rate lower than both the Federal Reserve target of 2% per year and current CPI-based estimates of real U.S. inflation of 1.9% annually. Testing on Human Beings no institutional review board required. In light of the broader field of monetary policy worldwide, the upcoming Bitcoin halvening will come at a particularly auspicious juncture. 
Despite considerable efforts over more than a decade, the Federal Reserve and other central banks have attempted and failed to engineer a rate of inflation, in the case of the Federal Reserve, of 2%, even after vastly expanding the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and undertaking numerous other expansionary programs. Even casual observers of global central banking practice will note that the apparent inability of the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and other such institutions to manufacture inflation has not led to some newfound respect, let alone humility, in light of their demonstrated lack of understanding of so powerful a force. Even a cursory review of history reveals that inflation is second only to war where forces laying waste to civilizations are considered. To the contrary, legions of economists within these usually quasi-public entities have redoubled their efforts, embracing unconventional policy implementations, the most recent and well-known of which are sequential phases of quantitative easing. Whether Federal Reserve economists have forgotten or don't care that billions of real human beings toil beneath their policy machinations is an exercise for the reader to consider. Indeed, despite scores of warnings about the alleged dangers of low inflation, the drumbeat of statistics and other reports citing the deteriorating character of U.S. household finances leads one to question exactly what impact the Federal Reserve thinks that raising prices by several percent would have on tens of millions of families. Contrarily, Bitcoin's limited supply has always been a draw for investors and spenders cognizant of the effects of inflation on purchasing power. With the rate of production of Bitcoin via mining taking place at a rate less than the Federal Reserve's stated target rate, and possibly less than the real rate of inflation, in May 2020, Bitcoin may have economically incontestable reasons to become a legitimately competitive store of value versus most of the other world currencies. Part of that, of course, hinges critically upon price volatility. Quantitative easing versus qualitative tightening. One may argue, I certainly am, that by algorithmically limiting the ultimate number of Bitcoin which will ever exist, and further by making their origination via mining, adhere to a predictable, transparent, and decrementing character, Bitcoin, and more specifically the Hashcash Proof-of-Work Protocol, closely approximates a monetary policy implementation known as qualitative tightening. That is to say, economically speaking, it is the diametric opposite of the quantitative easing campaign that central banks are continuing to tinker with at our peril. This will undoubtedly add to its attractiveness, and, barring the outbreak of extreme volatility, will likely increase its store of value characteristics. Many people believe that the Bitcoin halving of 2020 will spark a new uptrend in price, but that is far from certain. Although the market for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally is more liquid and transparent now than it was at the last halving, much, if not all, of the effect may already be priced in. Sentiment surrounding Bitcoin has cooled in the last 18 to 24 months, and the entire crypto complex has traded differently since Bitcoin futures contracts were introduced on the CBOE and subsequently canceled. 
although they continue to trade on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The Bitcoin halving of 2020. Compelling prospects. There are plenty of reasons for which the arrival of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies broadly, as an asset class a bit over a decade ago, has been a most fortuitous development, not least of which is the increasingly experimental bent of central banks around the world. Alongside that are political candidates endorsing central planning and, to accomplish them, recommending even more outlandish monetary theories. Add to those reasons not only an algorithmically scheduled predictable rate of inflation, again in the antiquarian sense, but rates which are lower than both nominal and real rates of inflation, and Bitcoin's use case begins to look increasingly less speculative. This is an op-ed by Peter C. Earle, Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, and that's IRAIER.org, by the way. Views expressed are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of Bitcoin Magazine or BTC Incorporated. All right, so I want to unpack this. Uh, we will get into Guy's take on this piece in just a moment. Let's go ahead and hit our sponsor. I'm going to grab something to drink, and we'll be right back. All right, so again, that was titled, that was off of BitcoinMagazine.com, and that was titled The Kindest Cut, Why the 2020 Bitcoin Having is the Most Important Yet, author Peter C. Earle. Um, a fellow at the IRE, uh, American Institute for Economic Research. And again, you can find those guys at IRE.org. Uh, I've actually read a couple, I think two, maybe three articles by them on the show, if I'm not mistaken. I actually have to go through. I'm at 350 reads now. Um, so I'm not 100% certain. But this has a lot of great points in it. And it applies to the conversation that we've been having about... <laughs> about the having, um, <laughs> about the next supply cut in the Bitcoin system, in the Bitcoin issuance schedule. Now, before we go into anything, I actually want to reiterate the point that he made early on in the article about the difference between inflation in prices and inflation in supply. Um, uh, one, if you really want to take a deep dive down this, uh, there's an uh, article that I read in episode 314, or read 314, um, that uh, it's by Connor Brown. It's called uh, "Stop Calling Bitcoin Deflationary." Really good argument, um, and really hits this topic and why we should not be calling it deflationary. Because really, the supply itself, which uh, uh, Peter in this article um, explains, the supply is inflationary. In fact, the supply of Bitcoin is always inflationary. It just gets increasingly less and less inflationary. And even though we get down to one Satoshi in 2140, um, it's very possible that we end up in a situation where we could just soft fork to uh, a bunch of new decimal places. So even though it's supposed to end in 2140, um, it may turn out that, you know, in you know, 2050 or something, for some reason, uh, we want to soft fork and just add 10 more decimals or uh, something, and, and that would not be... Uh, that would be something that you would not actually have to break consensus for because it's just smaller units. You just have to add them into the protocol. Um, and, and I don't see how it would be too terribly difficult. So regardless of whether or not that happens, um, to some degree, Bitcoin is always inflationary. 
So Connor Brown breaks it down and says we should be referring to this as disinflationary, where it gets less inflationary by the supply as time goes on. But as Peter points out, inflationary and deflationary has inflation and deflation has come to be referred to as the prices that result from the change in supply. Uh, and obviously in the case of Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is incredibly inflationary when we're talking about just how many Bitcoins exist, uh, it is very deflationary when it comes to the idea of prices because demand and influx and the growth and expansion of this economy has vastly outpaced the inflation in supply. So where, where the supply only increased like, uh, you know, what was it? It's like 3 million, I think it will be for this having somewhere around there. So it's like 20 to 30% of the supply has been uh, uh, inflated in these past four years. But if you look at the price, the price has gone 20x. So the price has far outweighed the small percentage, the relatively small percentage of actual supply inflation. So that's, that's what he's meaning by the difference between inflation if we're talking about prices and inflation if we're talking about the actual supply of Bitcoin. So from here on out, uh, just for our, our guys' take here, um, we're going to be talking about inflation as just the supply of Bitcoin. So price is irrelevant. I'll talk about the price as just the price. So I think this halving, uh, between this halving and the next halving, the one that's going to come in 2024 and then 2028, uh, so we've got three. We've got three here. We've got this year, 2020, 2024, and then 2028, this series of halvings are going to be the most important in Bitcoin's entire existence. Whether it lasts to 2140 and whether we're talking about the Genesis block, I think these are going to be the make it or break it years of Bitcoin. And it's going to be because of what what Bitcoin will be at the end of this decade, um, like what it will represent in the economy if we are fully financialized, if we are fully liquid, if we are um, truly connected to the whole world. Um, Bitcoin is going to be something that we've never had to, we've never experienced in an economic system, an asset as scarce as Bitcoin. So I think what we've seen so far is really going to look like a cakewalk in the context of what has changed so far in the last 10 years versus what is going to change in the next 10 years because of Bitcoin. And this is if Bitcoin continues to survive. So, you know, caveat that if Bitcoin dies or something terrible goes wrong or the security model doesn't shift over and uh, it doesn't apply as it gets too valuable, et cetera, et cetera, um, I think the risk is very low. Um, obviously, I am here because I think it's one of the most profoundly interesting and sustainable systems as far as an economic design that I've ever seen. It's just unbelievable as far as a tool for creating such a system. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm either going to ride this thing to the moon or to the bottom of the ocean. Um, it's too, the, the potential reward, the, the potential of solving such an unbelievable, like a, a problem on the scale of millennia, the potential of doing that just can't, you, I can't turn away from that. So 
why do I think this decade is going to be so important? There's actually a couple of reasons. First is that Bitcoin, and this is what Peter really talks about in this article, is that Bitcoin will officially be in, in a purely visibility sense. And I'll talk about that in a minute, what I mean. Uh, but in the realm of the supposed inflationary model targets that we should be going for, like the perceived social norm of the 2% target or whatever it is, Bitcoin will now be competing directly with that monetary policy. And I think as the price or the value of this increases, um, uh, which I very much expected to do, I think we're going to see another very, uh, very significant hype cycle, um, particularly as this thing becomes more scarce and people realize just how independent if it, just the simple fact, if it continues to survive, I think it will become massively more valuable. But regardless, um, uh, so it will be in the realm of competing with traditional strong currencies, like the idea of a government currency and what they should be wanting their inflation rate to be. Uh, two, uh, sometime between the 2024 halving and the 2028 halving. That's when I think it's going to happen. It could happen after the 2028 halving. The, th that will definitely be a key um, player in whether or not s somewhere in there something major is going to shift and we will have to move into the third era of Bitcoin where these are either the dominant or at least an, a significant almost equal part of the security model as the actual block reward because we'll be dropping down to 12.5, um, 6.25, uh, 3.125 and then uh, 1.5 uh, six, one, two, five. Is that right? I, I, I don't know. We'll be getting down to one-ish Bitcoin per block. And this is, this is really the realm where fees are going to have to take over. If you haven't listened to it or read it yet, I suggest, um, is it Rusty Russell's? I think it's Rusty's. Um, he, he wrote uh, The Three Economic Eras of Bitcoin. I actually just rebooted it like a couple of weeks ago um, on the show. Um, so if you haven't listened to that one, that one's really good. And it talks about the, the, the free riding era, like, like Satoshi's reward era or whatever. And then the, the, the mix and what we, what we got in the transition between the first era and the second era was the first Bitcoin civil war. We got the block size debate. We got the, the first either shift or, con or the, not, not, not the first shift, but the first solid direction as far as the path of Bitcoin's future, like how we're going to maintain the monetary properties um, and uh, what we would expect or what we have to, how we have to bite the bullet. There's another one by Nick Carter that's really good about Bitcoin bites the bullet um, and how we make the hard decisions now because we know, we know what this next civil war is going to be. And somewhere around the 2028 having, we're going to enter the second Bitcoin civil war. And I think it's going to be just as messy, maybe even messier than the last. There's no telling because we'll have a much bigger infrastructure that's used to a, uh, a lot more money involved that's used to Bitcoin working a certain way. But at the same time, it's going to be much harder to change. So while there may be more people screaming for it to change, there's also probably a lot more hurdle to actually making 
uh, actually changing Bitcoin. So we'll see. Um, it's going to be an insane decade either way. Um, and that's where Peter talks about volatility and or hoping that there is a lack of volatility. I'll get to that in just a minute. But I don't think we will get, I don't think we will get that privilege or uh, uh, be that lucky in a sense. But the third thing that I think is going to make these next halvings uh, so powerful and, and meaningful in the context of Bitcoin's lifespan is that sometime between May 2020, like the, the next halving that's right around the corner, and then the 2024 halving, and this is something I'm surprised Peter didn't bring up in his article. I kept, when I read it the first time, I was like, oh, oh, he's getting to it, he's getting to it, but then he never hit it. Um, uh, he was talking about the Fed's inflation rate uh, and then the Fed's target, but didn't mention what gold's inflation rate is. And somewhere in, I think, 2022, depending on uh, gold's inflation rate fluctuates because, you know, sometimes you have a year where a lot of stock is, or a lot of new gold is found, and then, you know, it, it, it fluctuates a little bit. It's not consistent like Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is going to pass gold. Bitcoin is going to become the least inflationary, uh, independently owned asset on planet Earth. Uh, right now, gold, uh, this past year, um, not 2019 because I couldn't find numbers, um, but 2018, gold's inflation rate, they, they mined uh, 3,347 tons of gold. The rough stock was 190,000 tons of gold. That's a 1.76% inflation of, of just the supply of gold over the year of 2018. After this next halving, um, we'll have completed uh, two halvings and moved into the third uh, halving era. We will start out with 18.375 million Bitcoin. Uh, we will have a 1.78% inflation that is barely higher than gold. Gold commands a, what, $8 trillion market cap now? And... It is specifically because of its ability to secure its monetary properties. It is a monetary premium that gold carries. There is shinier stuff that is worth less because it is not as good uh, as far as its monetary characteristics. And Bitcoin, I mean, excuse me, gold still commands that high, even though it's a terrible medium for transacting and it's highly centralized. It cannot be very easily independently secured and transferred. Bitcoin does not have those problems. Bitcoin is in a completely different mechanism. We ju just yesterday's episode was Peter, Peter, um, mixing up this author, uh, Parker Lewis's um, piece, Bitcoin Obsoletes All Other Money. Gotta listen to that one if you haven't. I'm so good. That whole Gradually Then Suddenly series is just fire. But the first year will be at 1.78%, but then realize we'll be adding stock to it, even though the inflation will be linear. So, so during those four-year periods, um, it will be the exact same uh, amount of new coins until the next halving, but the number of coins that exist will increase. So it will actually be 2022-ish, somewhere in there, that if gold's uh, inflation rate remains stable... It will drop to one point, Bitcoins will drop to 1.75%, uh, 
then 1.72%, then 1.69% before the next halving. And at the next halving, it's 0.82%. So just before the halving comes around, we're very likely, Bitcoin is very likely to be uh, less inflationary than gold, the hardest monetary asset on the planet, and that fell, that lost its place as the world reserve currency because it could not prevent the corruption of the money. Because big, uh, excuse me, because gold could not be transacted over the internet in, in a modern, fast economy, we had to switch to paper money. And because of that, gold became centralized. And then its independence, it lost its independence. We lost the ability to know that our money was backed by gold because we could no longer, gold itself, the metal, could no longer fulfill the role of the money, of the medium of exchange in the economy. And because of that, it became highly centralized. And now we're using a dollar that supposedly, we're using paper and digital points that are supposedly backed by gold. But the reality is the supply has nothing to do with actual gold. And because of that, because of gold's inherent limitations, we lost sound money because it could be corrupted. It could, not, it could no longer satisfy the needs of the economy in the ability to transact and facilitate exchange. And therefore, we had to defer to centralized institutions. Now, Bitcoin doesn't have that problem. Bitcoin is digital. Bitcoin is inherently on the internet. Bitcoin has the potential to actually restore a sound money standard. Now, if gold could do that today, if we could actually trustlessly use gold and adhere to the gold supply, there was no paper gold, we were actually using gold online, how valuable do you think it would be? we could actually use that currency if that was possible i truly don't think we would have ever lost the gold standard because it would have been too easy for people to exit and that that's really the problem is it because you can't use physical gold you, it's impossible to exit the paper dollar or at least really difficult to exit the paper dollar so getting to see what that inflation what that inflation rate could do in an asset that's natively digital and harder to corrupt, harder to centralize, that is just, that is not something to miss. Like, this is something that I, I feel like if we're not watching it closely, we're missing the most important thing that's going to happen this decade because that will literally change everything. Now, before we get there, uh, I, said, I said earlier that um, uh, a Bitcoin will visibly, in a visible sense, um, be in the realm of the inflation of the dollar and like the central bank targets. Well, I said visibly because, um, and I, I assume Peter Earle probably knows of this. If not, uh, that's great, and I hope I'm telling him about something he doesn't know about. Um, but that uh, clearly, I, I would assume P Peter, um, just being part of IRE, uh, knows about the incredible, I guess you could say corruption, or the, the lack of any sense of objectivity in the CPI numbers. 
um, particularly since the late 70s and the 80s, uh, when they made significant changes. I mean, it's, it's too, too much to get into in a single episode, but, uh, and maybe we'll cover actually uh, inflation and the CPI at some point um, from an article on Ire or Mises or something. But if you haven't checked it out, you guys should check out the Chapwood Index. That's C-H-A-P-Woodindex.com. Um, and the Chapwood Index is a breakdown uh, for a pretty long span of time now. The prices of the top 500 purchased goods in the U.S. And it's across the top like 50 major cities across the U.S. It represents, I think, um, I did some rough math. I think it's like around 10% of the U.S. population just in all these cities. So it's a huge swath of the U.S. population and the top 500 goods purchased. And it's an effort to measure real inflation. What is the inflation of the cost of our standard of living? Now, this shows the inflation rate uh, actually closer to about 10% across the country, or at least across all 50 of these cities annually. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's getting up, at, like if you look at the averages, depending on the city, you can anywhere between 7 to 8% to 12 13% uh, over these spans of time. Now, there's an assumption that I'm making here, is that since this only accounts for 10% of the population, and I would expect, um, like I feel like this is a general, general truth that rural areas, rural areas, rural areas, that word, um, I have a lot less inflation than cities. Cities usually have concentrated inflation. So I would expect the real numbers to average somewhere between 4 and 6%. But that's if you discount. Um, like the CPI is so skewed. In so many ways, there's, there's something called, there's this ridiculous concept called hedonics. And uh, it's essentially that if a product improves to a degree perceived as greater than the increase in the nominal cost. So like when your iPhone is like 20% better than last year's model, that if that improves and the price goes up 50 bucks, they get to count it as if the price has fallen because the improvement of the product. I'm not shitting you. This is a real thing. Uh, I, I, I'll drop you a link. Uh, I got a lot of links here to cover. I, I'll drop you a link uh, to one on the Mises Institute that really breaks down the concept. But this is literally insane. It's, it, it's attempting to use the natural productive increase and innovation of the market as a mechanism to cover up how much value they are stealing from us. So they're using our own increase in productivity to skew the numbers down for how much they're stealing from the economy. So, so think about this. If we get like 3% more productive and they print 3% of the money supply, uh, just in theory, obviously this doesn't happen because it spreads un very unevenly throughout the economy. But let's say that this roughly equals the inflation. We get inflation equal to the uh, productive increase of the, of the economy, well then because things got better generally, they get to call it deflation, even though our lives did not get any cheaper. Anyway, the short version of all this was, in the next two halvings, Bitcoin will be a, an asset so scarce that it is impossible for anyone in the world to ignore it. 
and uh, kind of per the gradually then suddenly uh, concept and uh, the series that we've been reading and the way technology builds on itself, we've, we've been in an accelerating change. Uh, and I think it's very hard to see being inside of this, but the world has changed more in the last 10 to 20 years than I think we saw in the previous 50 years. And I think this is, this is accelerating. And the, the changes that are kind of come, up, come about this, we're clearly seeing the cusp of an incredible set of political shifts. This, this can't hold. The line cannot hold here. There is something massive coming, and Bitcoin is playing a huge part of this. Uh, and the internet is playing a massive part of this. The old systems are, are literally on the verge of not having any power. And, and I think what, one of the best examples of that is how crazy they're all becoming. They're grasping at everything that they can, and they're trying to control. And it looks like things are getting worse, but I, I truly believe that's because things are fundamentally getting better. And the, the people who are being contested, essentially the systems that were in charge and are becoming increasingly less relevant, are getting desperate. They, they're seeing their importance wane in front of them. And I think Bitcoin plays an incredibly powerful role in the, con the continuation of that trend. And to see an entirely different economic system that will grow in tandem with the current one, but that every dollar move moved into the Bitcoin economic system, the crypto economy, every dollar that moves into that is a dollar out of the other. And there will come a point where any movement in Bitcoin is actually, is actually seen with a decline in the alternative economy, in the legacy economy. Right now it's too small. Right now it's too small to see the effect. But I don't think it will be before the end of this decade that that's no longer the case. And there will be a clear and very simple answer as to the discussion or, or to the question of what is a safer place to hold your money? Which one will provide you a better life in five years versus a worse one? That's the role of money in society, is which one will translate my value from today into the future better? And people will choose out of a self-interest to preserve their own life and the own value that they earned. They will choose sound money. And that is irregardless of their political views or their philosophical views. The desire and necessity to preserve your life runs a lot deeper than those. That is why you never trust anyone's opinion or decision if they do not have skin in the game. Hat tip to uh, Nassim Taleb's book, by the way. But therein lies a part of the reason why I think this is not priced in. Um, and Peter Earle suggests in this article, and for very good reason, if you take a, just a kind of cursory exploration or, or look at the liquidity of the markets, um, is a very, very liquid market these days. There's no, there's no essential cap on not enough money being able to get into the markets. 
Um, there is a lack of arbitrage opportunities. This is again, this is what we've covered with uh, Nick Carter's article and what we've covered covered with Plan B's um, stock to flow recent stock to flow article that was sort of a rebuttal of Nick Carter's. But all about the um, this is the general thinking of the efficient market hypothesis is that if the supply change is known, if we know what the supply is going to be in May 2020, we know what all these inflation rates are supposed to be. Well, then it should be priced in by the market. Why? What? The market knows. This is, not, this is in no way whatsoever hidden information. It's not like a secret. So shouldn't the market be pricing it in already? I think that's a perfectly reasonable assumption from the basis of that idea. But I think it's missing in what Plan B argues, um, and I really go into um, kind of my version of it or, or expansion of what he was getting into with his risk and return model. Um, but I went into that in the Guys Take episode following that, is that why I do not think at all that the having is priced in and why, um, per Plan B's suggestion, and my current thinking is that they are incredibly overestimating the risk associated with putting money in Bitcoin and the fact that Bitcoin is going to go through a huge change. Like I said, in the next decade, we're going to go through the second, we're going to finish the second economic era of Bitcoin. We're going to go into a completely unique security model that we have not dealt with yet. We've not completely tested, I guess you could say. So there's a lot of risk there, but then also the risk in just the Lindy effect. Um, the Lindy effect is a general idea that the longer something survives, the longer our proportional idea or perception of how long it will survive into the future is. So, you know, if something's 10 years old, we would expect maybe it could survive at least, or it would be around for at least another 10 years. Well, therein lies a huge time discount for whether or not we should be, for how much we should be pricing in a supply cut, uh, if it's six months away, if it's five years away, is Bitcoin really going to still be around then? And if it is still around, it's going to be a force to be reckoned with. Now, 10 years ago, roughly, I guess it's probably 11 years now, the iPhone was released. The smartphone era had begun just 10 years ago. Now think, there's hardly anyone that doesn't have a smartphone. The, the, the cell phone and smartphone explosion has been so fast. When you look historically at the speed of a technology being adopted, now what that did is it took the reins of communication out of the hands of the incumbents. The, what is shared on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube is more powerful today than what is said on CNN. That happened really, really quickly. And if you don't believe me that that's true, go to those shows, go to CNN. What are they doing? They're talking about what happened on social media. The news is what Donald Trump tweeted. The news is this video that went viral. They're just regurgitating crap off the internet. They've become completely redundant. So the normal news, the legacy news system is still there, and it's still desperately grasping onto the last remnants of its relevance in society, of its, uh, the, 
it's, it's hanging on to that old authority it used to have, but it lost it very, very quickly. And that was simply in the fact that we, they were no longer a middleman to get information from the west side of the country to the east side of the country, to get a video from Japan to the United States, from Hong Kong to your Facebook page. That disappeared. That barrier and that middleman is no longer there. And that happened in less than a decade. Bitcoin is going to do that to our financial system and our governments. The central banks of the world are literally in a race to zero for their currencies. They are trying to devalue their currencies faster than the next guy. And in, the, in this currency war that we're in the midst of, they've not had to deal with a sound money competitor that they can't control. And they will now have to. This decade, that will be a rea reality that they cannot avoid. It will be the elephant in the room at every central banking uh, meeting, at the G20, at every single group of people who get together and think they're going to fix the world by controlling and manipulating our money. Bitcoin is going to be standing in the corner of that room, casting a shadow on everyone. The next decade is going to be a wild ride, ladies and gentlemen. All I can say is you guys better be paying attention because it's going to get crazy and I am excited. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good a place as any to uh, close this episode. Holy crap, my rant. Oh my God, my guy's rant went to 32 minutes. Uh, well, it was just a good article and is a great concept. I love this stuff. Uh, a huge thank you to Peter C. Earl for this uh, piece. Uh, and you guys should definitely check out ire.org. They have a lot of great uh, pieces on economics. Um, Jeffrey Tucker writes up there a lot, and I know he's a B-casher, forgive him. Um, he is a good, honest guy. But they have a lot of great work. And, of course, thank you to Bitcoin Magazine and the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. Um, uh, this has been great working with the, these guys. Uh, Bitcoin Magazine is just, hands down, one of the best uh, publications in this space. I read almost everything that they publish. And I, if you want to stay up on what's going on in Bitcoin, in the possibilities, in the, the economics, the technology, the development, this is literally the place to go. Bitcoin Magazine is it. I love it. Uh, cannot recommend it enough. And thank you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network for uh, syndicating the work that I'm doing, uh, turning their audio or turning their articles into audio. And they've always got great stuff. So all right, guys, uh, thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out and subscribe to the show if you want to get the other uh, reads. I, I do this pretty much daily. Uh, and like I said, we've covered a couple of great pieces by Nick Carter, Plan B, uh, Parker Lewis, and the Unchained Capital blog, and obviously numerous Bitcoin Magazine articles recently. Always great stuff. I do this every day that I can manage it. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the show. It means everything. But for now, I will let you guys go. I will talk to you tomorrow. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is The Crypto Economy. I love you all. I'll see you next time. Till then, take it easy, guys.
Thank you.